As they make their way downstairs, would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Job, chapter number 22, please. Job chapter 22. We're just going to take a, a couple of chapters this morning in this last round of discourse between Job and his friends. In these chapters, I, I think we, we, we learn of God's work and his faithfulness in the life of his people, and we are assured here that God will complete what he appoints for us, uh, or what, how Paul words it, uh, that um, he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. And uh, so, so as we come to these chapters, we are reminded that, um, that God is doing a good work in the midst of Job's affliction, in the midst of his sufferings, as terrible as they were, Job continued to serve a faithful God. Now, he had difficulties grasping that, but when he is confronted by the Lord himself, he is reminded that God is trustworthy and God is faithful to care for his creation and to care for his people. If you remember, we, we've been looking at this discourse. The bulk of the book of Job is made up of the discourse between Job and his three friends, and um, his, his one of his first, the oldest of his friends would speak, and then Job would respond. The second would speak. The Job would respond, and the third would speak. In this third round, only the his first friend, Eliphaz, and and um, Bildad speaks. Zophar seems to be done with everything he has to say. He ran out of out of ammo, and so he is done. But uh, the, the the general thrust remains the same in each of those rounds that Job is confronted by his friends and by his counselors. They are continuing their attack on him in, in the, for the purpose of bringing counsel to him. Uh, their desire, and I do believe their, their heart's desire was to protect God's glory, but uh, when it's all said and done, uh, they enter into sin and God rebukes them where uh, they are to present offerings and then to approach Job for forgiveness. But when we come to chapter 22, we find the, the, his friend, once again, Eliphaz, is speaking. He weighs in, once again, and he accuses Job not only of hidden sin, but of practicing injustice. Look with me. In your Bibles, and we're not going to read the entire chapter. We are going to look, read the entire chapter 23, but in chapter 22, we want to get the idea of where Eliphaz is and what he is presenting to Job and how it affects Job's thinking and how it affects Job's heart. Verse number six, Eliphaz says to him, for you have exacted um, uh, pledges of your brothers for nothing. Actually, let's back up to verse number one and let's make our way, let's get a running start on these, these verses. Verse number one, Eliphaz the Temanite answered and he said, can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. But is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? Is it for your fear of him? that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you. Essentially, Eliphaz is saying, do you really think that the God on high has anything, any thoughts about you? 
Do you think it really matters? Do you think he's afflicting you because you're righteous, because you're good? No, he afflicts only the wicked. Remember, we talked about that last week. Then he begins to issue accusations toward Job. Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing. You've stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink. And you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land, and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless are crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness, so that you cannot see, and a flood of water covers you. Essentially, he is simply trumping up these charges against Job and saying, you're about to get it. Because you are wicked and you are vile. Look at all the things that you've done. It's astounding to read these things because these things were not true. And Job defends himself later on in, uh, in, chapter, in, in, in uh, chapter number 28. We'll get to that next week. But when we read this, we, we learn that these are either false or, at the very best, exaggerated charges that Job later refutes. But Eliphaz is so intent on proving his point, he goes beyond what is true. Okay, so, so we'll step back for just a second here, just for those of you who are counseling others. Uh, and by the way, we all counsel, we all disciple others. Uh, we just need to ask ourselves, is our counsel biblical? Are we actually speaking on behalf of God as we offer counsel to others. His counsel then is that Job needed to repent. Look in verse number 21. Here's his counsel. Because you are so vile and you are so wicked in your behavior, this is what you need to do, Job. Agree with God. By the way, that's the term for confession. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That idea of confession is to agree with God that my behavior is a sin. So he says, agree with God. Be at peace. Thereby goodwill come, whereby, thereby goodwill come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. If you remove injustice from your tents. Again, um, let me reiter reiterate, this is good counsel. This is not unbiblical, unhelpful counsel. If, in fact, Job was guilty of sin. But Job was not. Eliphaz was acting upon an assumption, not of Job, but of God. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do for a brother or a sister in Christ is to call them to repentance. Let's not, let's not wash this, sweep this under, under the rug. We, we, wanted, we want to be clear, the most loving thing you can do to a brother, for a brother and sister in Christ is if they are in sin, to lovingly, graciously, humbly, call them, and to restore them into right standing before God, into right communion uh, 
with God to call them to repentance. But it is with the intent of restoration. And it is to be with the humility, with a humility of heart, being filled with the Holy Spirit. If you want more detail, look in, Ephesians, uh, in Galatians chapter 6 in the first few verses. Eliphaz erred because he began with a false premise that God afflicted and God chastened only those who are in sin. Now, I know that I am reiterating a lot, that I am speaking again and repeating myself from, from weeks past, but this is the position from which Eliphaz is offering his counsel. And I think it's important for us to remind ourselves of this because an incorrect premise at the outset will always lead to incorrect assumptions and outcomes. He had an incorrect premise that God only afflicts and only brings trials to those who are in sin. There are other reasons why we face trials. There are other reasons why we, why we face difficulties in life. So if God afflicts and chastens only those who are in sin, let's follow the process or the, the train of thought for Eliphaz. If God afflicts and chastens only those who are in sin, and Job was being afflicted and chastened, that in itself indicated to Eliphaz that Job must therefore be in sin. So in every interaction throughout the book, Eliphaz spoke to his friend with assumptions about what he could not know. He could not know truly Job's heart and motivation. Now, this is the final confrontation in sin. This is his final confrontation with Job, but in sin, Eliphaz trumped up false charges in order to prove his judgment against Job. I want to pause here for a minute. And, and I, again, I, I want us to consider and to learn from Job's friends as we minister, as we serve one another in love. Because we are called to the one another's, aren't we? The body of Christ. We are called to the one another's, the ministry of one another's, to love one another's, to uphold one another's, to confront one another. That's the ministry of the, of, the, of, the, of the body of Christ. We minister to one another by caring enough for one another to be involved in one another's lives. Now, if you are involved in um, the dinner for four that's going on, we met last, our, our dinner of 19 met last night, and uh, we were reading a book that was picked out for us by uh, Pastor Isaac, and um, he told us we had to read it, so we did because we are obedient um, fellow sheep. And as we read it, it talked about, about the, the caring for another and praying for one another and how we depend upon one another, how we need one another. But in order for us to honestly have, be able to pray for one another, it calls for humility. Why do we need humility to be able to pray for one another? Because we need humility to admit that we actually need someone to pray for one, for, uh, for us. Can you pray for me because of this in my life? There is a caring for one another that the, church of, that the church of Christ is called to do. We are to love one another. So as we look at the friends of, of um, Job, and we call them friends because that's what the Bible calls them. They did not necessarily act like any friends I want to hang out with, but they were friends of Job. Here are three things that we might consider as we look at these three men and their counsel to Job. First, 
There is only one Holy Spirit, and you are not him. That's really important for us to understand. It is not our job to convict the hearts of our friends. We want to speak truth into their lives, and God, by his Spirit, through his word, will bring conviction of heart. That's not your job. So if you're counseling, counseling someone, it is not your job to attempt to bring a conviction of heart. You can trust God to use his word and the teach in a speaking of it to affect the heart of the hearer. That means, first of all, that you cannot know, if you are not the Holy Spirit, you cannot know the heart and the motives of another person. As a matter of fact, to a great degree, apart from the indwelling Spirit of God, you are sometimes blinded to your own heart and motives. Sometimes we, don't, sometimes we do something that is really good for others, and we don't realize later, or maybe we never realize, that we did it because we like people's praise. We like that pat on the back. We like the Matthew chapter 6 description there, that they have their reward. That the heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Lord says he searches the heart, he tries the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Now, that is not to say that you cannot know by experience someone's character and his tendencies, and therefore you might understand their usual thought pattern and motives, but we need to exercise spiritual discernment and caution when offering counsel. Second of all, if your brother or sister in Christ confesses sin... Or if there is known sin, it is an act of love to call them to repentance. But it must be carried out in humility and grace with the intent of restoration for the glory of God. Third, we learn from these three friends, if your brother or sister in Christ is going through trials of any kind, and there is no apparent cause or reason, you don't need to come up with an answer. If your friend says, why am I going through this? Don't make something up. It's okay to say, I don't know. I'm not God. Now, occasionally, if they are blind to the apparent source of their affliction, you might, as a loving friend, point point it out. I mean, like one teacher said once that one of the kids came in, putting her finger back, say, ow, ow, this hurts, this hurts. Well, what was a good counsel? Stop doing this. Right? Stop. Um, so you can offer those type of things, but sometimes there, there are, there's no apparent reason why we experience trials. And it's okay that we don't always understand. We may not like not knowing because we all want to know what's going on, but that's okay. As a counselor, we do well to simply be there for them and to point them to Jesus. Phoebe's mom Sent, sent her to the Dollar General just around the corner, not the one down the street, but the one just around the corner, uh, to get some eggs so she could finish her baking. Well, Phoebe was gone quite a bit longer than she than usual, so Mom began to worry. And just as she was about to go out to look for her, Phoebe walked in the door. Well, expressing her concern, Mom asked, what, what took you so long to run such a quick errand? Phoebe said, that on her way back home, she saw her friend Deborah sitting in, in her yard crying. And um, so she stopped, um, and she began to ask her what was wrong. Her friend, Deborah, said, 
that she was playing with her rag doll, and somehow it got snagged onto something, and her arm was torn off, and she couldn't fix it. So when mom asked Phoebe what she did, Phoebe said, I didn't do anything. I just sat down with, Deb with Deborah. I told her, I can't fix your doll, but if you'd like, I can sit and cry with you for a little bit. Sometimes as we offer counsel, the best thing we can do is simply to be shut up, keep your mouth shut, and cry with your friend. That's one another's. That's the body life that God has called us to. Now, Job took his friend's accusations to heart, and much of his speech throughout the book is actually in defense of his innocence before God. By the way, Job was not exactly without fault, we'll find here. But Job's argument was, was not against his friends. Ultimately, it was against God, such as what we find in chapter 23. And I want to camp out this morning in this chapter. Uh, in this chapter, we learn at least four things about God. Uh, and I, I want us to just make these observations. And I want you to make note as we are making our way through this chapter, um, and, and have your Bibles open to that chapter. We're going to kind of work our way through, the, through each of those verses. Keep in mind that, um, that, that Job addresses these things about God from a negative view, but they are nonetheless true. In fact, without hesitation, Job admits his attitude toward his situation and his attitude toward God. Read with me in the first seven verses here. And I think in this, this portion here, what we learn about God is that God's ways are perfect. Okay? So we're going to look at four things that we learn about God. The first is God's ways are perfect. Job answered Eliphaz, and he said, Today... Also, my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. So right off the bat, he is honest. He is saying, I'm just kind of hacked off right now because I don't like what I'm going through. And it does not seem fair. Verse number three. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. That is, where I might find God. And listen to his plea. Listen to his argument. This is not the first time that Job makes it. Oh, that I might know. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. So that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him. I would fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Again, this is not the first time that Job speaks in such a way as to accuse God of afflicting him for no cause. And we're going to learn in just a minute that Job understood that God's purposes were actually for his good. He didn't like it, but he understood that God's purposes were for his good. Here, 
And at other times, Job expresses the frustration of his heart before the Lord. Now, before we go, go further, it, I think it is important to note that we do, do well to read this more as descriptive rather than prescriptive. What do I mean by that? I think we need to exercise caution when we read this and to say, well, Job, Job was kind of cocky toward God, so I can be kind of cocky toward God. I don't believe that's what the purpose is here. And I don't think it would be a good habit or a good practice to try to develop a cocky attitude toward God. Now, so it, might, it, it is simply descriptive. Um, and, and that is, as we read this, just because, because righteous Job spoke with such boldness to the Lord doesn't mean that it is a posture that we should so readily embrace. Now, granted, um, Job, of his own admission on several occasions throughout the book, admitted that his words were merely was just simply wind. He was pouring out his heart and putting into words what he was thinking. And granted, I think there there may be time there may be a time in your life when when your affliction is so great that it conjures up questions about why God is doing what He is doing. And I'm not saying that. That is a sin to do. What I am saying is that even in our questioning God, complaining to God, whining to God, and even accusing God, we do so with a reverence toward God. We, we retain a fear of God. Even Eliphaz, earlier in chapter 15, expresses a deep concern toward Job. And it was a good, good, good concern he had. He said, you are doing away with the fear of God and you are hindering meditation before God. So he was concerned that Job had no fear of God. And I, I believe those who belong to God, those who truly belong to him, have a reverential fear for Abba Father. Right? We, we understand the whole concept there, that the Holy Spirit has been given to us, the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba Father. And while we can cry, Daddy, there is still a sense of reverence. There is a reverence, there is a, 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 an aspect of fear before our God. Why? Because God is God. Now notice in verses 3 to 6 that Job argues that God is silent in his anguish. As in previous chapters, he pleads for an audience before the Lord, expecting that he would be able to plead his case before him. By the way, you realize that the only person, only person that is ever able to stand before God and plead his case to be entirely and completely righteous would be Jesus Christ himself. That is why those of us who are in Christ can come boldly to the throne of grace because we are in Christ and we do not come upon come to the Lord on our own righteousness. Now beginning in chapter 38 God answers Job's demands to gain an audience before him, and we're going to get to that, where God begins to speak to Job face to face, but there, Job is, Job's plea for an audience before God is granted, and there, he's not as bold there as he is here. It is my opinion, and I do tell you it is my opinion, I have in my notes, capital opinion, which means simply, I'm not telling you that this is the word of God. I'm telling you this is my opinion, uh, that although, dem and I, although I do believe it's demonstrated 
by many of the psalms, psalmists and several of the prophets, it's still my opinion, I, I think there is a healthy pouring out of our hearts that questions God's works and ways and expressing a frustration and dislike of what he's doing. I think it's okay that we express those things. It's not as though he doesn't know what we're thinking, right? But we do so all the while maintaining a healthy fear of God. It is my opinion that those honest questions coupled with fear of God often lead to a greater knowledge of God and thus a maturing faith in his ways and his works. A good thing to always remember is that God is always right and you're not. But, but, but it is in God's silence that we learn that his ways are perfect. That is, Job's accusations posed no threat to his character. Job's questioning didn't drive God to defend himself. God didn't feel like, oh, I better answer him. Why do he doesn't answer him? Even when he, when he approaches, when he faces him, uh, when he gives him an audience, God actually never gives him an answer of what's going on. So God's not threatened. Why? Because God is carrying out a purpose. God has, God's ways are perfect. God is silent, continuing to do what he knew was best on behalf of Job. In the next few verses, Job points out that God was intent in completing his purpose in Job because he knows his desires, knows his own desires and his own decrees and his own purposes. He knows what is best. Now, in chapter 29, we're going to get that next, to that next week, Job rehearses his life prior to his affliction. And in that chapter, it conveys a man who was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. His reputation, his influence within the sphere of, uh, of, of influence was great, and, his, and he was a blessing to those around him. But then in chapter 30, Job explains how because of his affliction, everyone was turned about face. He states, but now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with, with the dogs of my flock. They laugh at me. And we'll look at this more closely next Sunday. But one of the lessons we might get from, the, from this contrast is that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What do I mean by that? I mean that all that God does for us is good. Both the prosperity and his affliction that Job experienced was from God. And it was good. His prosperity was not the direct result of his righteousness. Rather, his prosperity was the direct result of God's grace. In the same way, Job's affliction was not the result of hidden sin, but his affliction was the direct result of God's grace. The psalmist wrote, This God, his way, is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God, his way, is perfect. The second thing we learn about God is that God's work is refining. God's work is refining. Look in verse number eight. 
Job, Job, again, speaking in out of frustration. Behold, I go forward. He's not there. I go backward. I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Notice three things about this from, this, from these verses. First of all, God's silence is not his absence. You know, Job thought it was. In his, in his mind, it was as the psalmist said, that, that it was as though the, the heavens were made of brass, that his prayers were simply bouncing off brass and bouncing right back to him, that there was no God working but God was in fact working. His silence does not indicate that he is absent. Even Job himself said that he was working in the midst of it. So his silence is not his absence. The, the psalmist writes in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me, you have known me. You know when I sit down and you know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and, and you are acquainted with all my ways. In fact, the psalmist writes, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Then he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too great for me to comprehend it is high, I cannot attain it. Often, it is God's silence that brings us to trust his promises. It forces us to rest in what is true, even when it seems our world is turned upside down. When we met last night, we, had, we have a couple of constru construction workers in our in our midst, and so they talked about construction and dirt moving and leveling fields, and they talked about how it's so weird. One of them even described how he was threatened. He, he, he almost went and bought new lasers to measure his, because he thought his lasers were broken, because walking up on, on property, sometimes it looked completely level, but when you hold it up against a straight-edge laser, it actually is pretty quick, crooked. And... So a lot of times they have to make all the adjustments or go buy a new laser. Um, we also have a pilot in our, in our, in our group. And, and so I asked him about the instruments. He said, yeah, you trust the instruments all the time. I hope I didn't put words in your mouth. But I, just pretend that's what he said. Be because our perception with our eyes often, often lies to us. Things may look perfectly straight. And then you build your house. And you're going to find that all of your marbles go to one end and uh, doesn't stay balanced in the middle, so you kind of lose them every once in a while. Or you may be flying and thinking that you are flying upright, when in fact you are flying upside down, unless you have something that is perfect and that is, that is absolute true. Often, often, God's silence is what brings us to trust his promises to be true and forces us to rest in what is truth, even when it seems our world is turned upside down. Notice also that God's silence is not the, is not, is not, uh, is not the ceasing of work. 
Look in verse number nine. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. Uh, on the left hand, when he is working. Even in this statement of frustration, Job acknowledges that God was working. God knows, notice another thing, God knows the way that I take. Verse number 10, he knows the way that I take. Although Job was arguing his innocence, that the Lord knows my ways, the statement still points to our God who, when we cannot see him, sees us and is faithfully carrying out his purposes. You get that? When we can't see him, when we don't know he is there, we can rest assured that God sees us. He knows what is going on. There is nothing that is taking place in your life that is out of the purview of God's hand upon us. Finally, God's works toward us. God, God, God works toward a purpose. Look in, in the latter part of verse number 10. He knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. There are several reasons why the Lord brings trials into our lives. First, if you are without Christ, the trials and afflictions you will face may not be today. But you can rest assured that one day you will face his judgment. So God's judgment upon you will come if you are outside of Christ. If you have never come to faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ, I would, I would compel you to turn to him and to trust that his work for the payment of your sin was sufficient for the forgiveness and for a right standing before God. And today you can trust him by faith. You can trust him right now. In fact, don't listen to the rest of my sermon. Turn to the Lord right now and confess your sin before him and trust him as your savior right now because God will speak to you. You may live in comfort and prosperity now, but one day it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment, you will face him. And I, I ask and I pray that today you will place your faith in him. But for, the, for those who are saved, for the regenerate sinner, if you are living in, in habitual sin, you can know that as a loving father, he will, cha he will chasten you. The writer of Hebrews puts it pretty bluntly. He says, if you aren't chastened when you're living in habitual sin, you're illegitimate child. Because a true loving father will chasten you. So if you, may, if, you are, if you are facing some difficulties and some affliction in your life, perhaps God is calling you to repentance. Perhaps God is calling you and pointing you to sin in your life. Perhaps you're miserable because there is sin that needs to be dealt with. And as God's child, you can take care of it. You too, I give you permission. Stop listening to me. Turn to God and confess your sin and repent of it. Stop by his grace. But there's a third reason why we, why we might face affliction, and that third reason is often the most difficult. He does so for a refinement. He refines us. We will come forth as gold. 1 Peter chapter 1, he writes to these scattered saints in Asia Minor, and he encourages them as they are undergoing the trials. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is constantly refining us and, co and conforming us to the image of his son. You know that old illustration of how do you make an elephant out of a square block of granite? You chip away everything that doesn't look like an elephant. 
And God is constantly chipping away in your life everything that doesn't look like Jesus. And folks, sometimes that hurts. Sometimes we are so stubborn that it has to hurt. Corey Ten Boom said, I have learned to hold on to the things of this world lightly so that he does not have to, gra- have to force that out of my hands. It just hurts too much. But God is faithful, and he continues to do, continue to do his work. Look at, look at the, the, the third thing we might learn, learn about God. God's word is restoring. Verse 11, my foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. In other words, I love it so much. I want to eat his word. We can eat God's word. There's a good book on the bookshelf that you need to read, How to Eat God's Word. Again, Job is arguing his innocence, right? But the, the point, but he points us to the sure foundation upon which we might rest. When in trials, Turn to God's word. Turn to what is true. When in trials, and you don't feel like turning to God's word, turn to God's word. When in trials, trust what God has said to be true. When in times of comfort, in times of prosperity, in times of ease, in joy, turn to God's word. We often quote the first part of Psalm chapter 19, the heavens declare the glory of our God, right? The, the sun declares, the declare, declares all that he is. We often miss the second portion beginning in verse number seven of Psalm 19, speaking of the word of God, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, endures for, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true the righteous all to, and righteous altogether. The psalmist continues, it says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. God's word restores in the midst of trials and tribulation. God's purposes are sure, verse 13 and 14, and we'll close with this. Job is complaining here, but he is speaking truth. But God is unchangeable, or he is, he stands alone. He is, he is the, he is the final call maker. He is unchangeable in his ways. Who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. Again, it is obvious that Job is not thrilled with the refining works of God, but God's glory is seen in his relentless faithfulness to his promise to sanctify us, completing in us what he has begun. The refining fire is never pleasant. And if left in our own hands, none of us would finish the course, right? We would all jump out of the fire. But God is faithful. He works for his glory. He hems us in where there is no escape except to turn to him 
and he works for our good, and he works for his glory. I trust that our study in the book of Job has been an encouragement to your heart. I can tell you, tell you that it has been a, a, a great encouragement for my heart to, re, heart to remind me of the faithfulness of our God. We can thank the Lord that he continues to work in our lives, and perhaps now you're not facing any difficulties, but know that God is working in your heart. His desire is to conform you to the image of his Son. Perhaps you are facing difficulties. Perhaps you're facing trials, tribulations, afflictions that we are unaware of. You need the body of Christ. You need one another. Find help, my friends and my brothers and sisters in Christ, but ultimately rest in God and his faithfulness to fulfill in you his desires and his purposes. To God be the glory. Thank you, Father, for your kindness toward us, your willingness your willingness to accomplish in us what you desire for our good and for your glory. Help us, Lord, each and every day during times of affliction as well as during times of comfort to ever look to you and to trust and to rest in you. In fact, Lord, I pray that as we live in the comfort of our nation and as we live in the comforts um, and the um, prosperity that we, we enjoy today, may this be a time that we might grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we be strengthened in you as we learn of you, as we rest in you, as we place our faith in you in the good times so that when the difficult times come, it will be normal for, to, for us to cling to you and to you alone. Teach us, Lord, each and every day to trust you because you alone are trustworthy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.